0: Welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Dr. Alan Abbas. He's a professor of the Faculty of Medicine and a founding director of the Center for Emotions and Health at Dalhousie University. Welcome.
0: Thanks, Tom. I would like to welcome Dr. Alan Abbas today. And he is one of my, and Alan, I'm going to sound like I'm gushing and I really am. He's one of my heroes in in my world because he's been so academic and so detailed. He really provided a tremendous amount of insights in how the mind and body work together as far as chronic pain in general. So he is a professor in the Faculty of Medicine and founding director of the Center for Emotions and Health at how do you pronounce it? Is it Dalhousie? How do you pronounce that, Alan? Dalhousie. Dalhousie University in Canada, and that's in Halifax, right? Mm -hmm. He is a leading teacher and researcher in the area of short-term dynamic psychotherapy, having provided over 300 invited presentations and 250 publications. His most recent book, Hidden from View, A Clinician's Guide to Psychophysiological Disorders, is now published in several languages. So I was telling Alan before the podcast this is the most understated introduction i think you've ever seen considering (laughs) what he's done so that's okay um so alan welcome to the show
2: thanks pleased to be here
0: and so i'll just tell you that he wrote a paper years ago on headaches that just categorized the body's reaction to stress and four different reactions and as you know i think that basically the body is it translates the circumstances and stresses into physical reactions to survive And Alan has really looked at this really carefully and really does some nice work in this. But I'm curious, is that how did you, where did you start? You were trained. What was your original training?
2: So I was originally a family physician and working in the emergency department. And uh, I was a bit struck by how many people were coming into emergency with chest pain, abdominal pain, headaches. I do the testing and work them up. Wouldn't find anything. I knew there was something else going on. I, I didn't know what how to even talk to the patient about it. I didn't know what to do about it, but I was very frustrated by this. And I ran across a form of short-term therapy that I could study while completing my second year of residency. And this was at Montreal McGill University. And there I am um, being introduced to uh, really a, a revolutionary form of a short-term psychotherapy focused on mind-body processes, focused on emotion physiology, with heavy use of video and live interviewing Uh, that was uh, developed by Dr. Habib Davenu in Montreal. So I started, that was in 1990. So after I started to work with uh, my first few patients up there and saying marked responses, Uh, even in my first few cases, I decided then to go do psychiatry and to dedicate my career to researching and teaching around the area of mind-body medicine, similar to work you're doing and my other colleagues, uh, co-author Howard and others, uh, so that's where that was back in, I completed my residency in 95 in psychiatry. And that's, I've been teaching, researching,
0: practicing ever since then. Then you, you had a little bit of experience yourself with pain. Did I, do I understand that correctly?
2: Yeah, I had, um, I had um, a series of, his, of disc herniations, uh, including an acute one back in 2004, And so I had like acute bunch of spasm and numbness and various things. And then I got into having a series of these kind of episodes where I'd be three or four days with a lot of spasm. And I gave up playing my beloved sport basketball. So I was mentioned I'm I'm six, nine, 240 pounds, always played basketball. So for about a 10 year interval, I kind of got out of condition and I really didn't even think I was gonna get back to playing. Uh, But I ran across a bunch of information around around John Sarno and uh, Howard Schubiner's things uh, and started just to say, I'm going to edge myself back in here. I got to find a way to do it. And so I just started to ease myself in, gradually got my conditioning good. And um, now I'm back to playing, but it's taken a a lot of time and process to get there. But I mean, I'm playing full on uh, basketball now with the young bucks, the 20 and 30 year
0: olds. <laughs> Can I ask how old you are now? Fifty nine. Fifty nine this month. Yeah, bas- I mean, basketball is a tough sport, as you all know. And how far did you play basketball in high school and college?
2: Yeah, I played university and uh, played like provincial all stars and
0: oh, you did basketball
2: camp. But yeah, okay. showing a lot of problems at one point there, and then and then medicine came along, and I had to uh, cut it out in order to to make to uh, have a medical career. But
0: right, so you're back. You're you're playing basketball now. No pain.
2: I, I have some I have some discomfort like here and there it gets kind of stiff in there when I go to play though it's better right for about half a week and then I got to play again so I I assume just loading up the joints getting everything going is so much healthy action for the whole body brain mind and everything that it it has an effect of removing whatever issues go on in joints and for me it's it's great
0: So I'm curious when you're, okay, so you're um, obviously a high-level basketball player, you're a physician, you went on to do psychiatry, your pain gradually resolved. I'm just curious, what were some of the paradigm shifts that started to occur internally? Because you had been exposed to the short-term dynamic psychotherapy at this point or not?
2: Oh yeah, I had been, um, my training started in 1990. So the way I would see it is there's Emotional processes to deal with childhood adversity. So there's okay. emotions that are stuck from childhood adversity. And when I started to train, a lot of those emotions just showed up and I felt things and I worked through things during the, mostly the early years of my training. Uh, this here pain issue, uh, I kind of consider it as somewhat separate. Because what happened is when I got the first injuries, I thought I'll, I'll treat it the same as I would any old muscle ache from when I was 20 years old. And I would try to power through it. So i try to push through, strain through, stretch the thing. I was making it worse. So I was basically causing myself to have more discomfort. And then I stopped playing and I got deconditioned right, out of shape and the muscles weren't, the joints weren't well protected. So when I tried to play, I'd get more pain. So I just stopped playing. But what I needed was a consistent approach and also keeping my body from going into any type of spasm to guard joints. That was super important. And that's just basically keep myself consciously calm. And, and on top of that, the conditioning. And the combination of those two things, my body stays loose, my joints don't get too tight, and I can go out and play.
0: And what are some of the tools that you use to stay consciously calm? So that would be um, just, I'll tell you, it's, it's interesting
2: just reading and uh, reading Sarno's stuff, reading some of Howard's stuff, reading some of the things that you've written. Uh, if you add it together, it's just reminding yourself that, you know, uh, pain doesn't mean you need to guard and protect and, you know, on its own discomforts. You, you don't want to be guarding. You don't want to be clamping and trying to fight through it. You want to just let, if you got an ache for some reason, this whole muscle or whatever it is, just let it settle down and then get going back again. So it's it's something that's part of it. The other just is, simply um when any kind of like areas are tightening up it's getting used to sort of forced exhale through like sort of a valsalva almost uh like long exhale breathing and so i used to do that on a regular basis i still do it sometimes you know if anything areas getting tight up. that's like an awesome approach to getting everything settled so when i was starting to train again after all those years out I was forcing my body into a relaxed mode. Even when I would get sore muscles, I was making sure I wasn't getting extra guarding and extra, you know, effect of getting things tight. So I was keeping things loose. Also, I mean, I worked with uh, a person around, you know, physio massage and those things, especially in the early days. And occasionally I'll still go now if I get, when I'm trying to say, I'm, you know, I'm still, I'm doing weights, I'm doing pushups, I'm, I'm trying, I still, I still have the dream. I still think someday, <laughs> I'll Make it to the pros. Well, maybe I'll maybe I'll make it to the over 60 tournament. That's one of my goals.
0: Yeah, I mean, the fact that you're playing basketball at that level, um, you sent me a video a while back about you dunking <laughs> a basketball, and that's always been my dream. I'm six foot two, so a lot of people six foot two can dunk a basketball. I never could. That was my one failure in life. I could never dunk. <laughs> so the fact that you're dunking a basketball at 59, I think it's just fantastic. That's so cool. So let me make a couple of comments, which you which I think you'll agree with, but you don't have to. So Um, I'd just like to point out to the group that, you know, there's been a lot of research pointing out that disc degeneration or degenerative disc disease, arthritis, bone spurs are not connected with pain. That's really key. So you're playing basketball. You still have the degenerated disc. You still have the bone spurs, but you don't hurt. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right.
2: I I even feel better when I get out there and and get everything pounded. (laughs) Right. The way I think of it is that basically every joint is being put through its full range of motion when you play basketball. It's so much twisting, turning, and rotating, you know, that you're basically everything from ankles, knees, hips, spine all the way up to the neck, shoulders, is put through a full range of motion. I assume that must do all kinds of good things, blood flow, uh, lubrication right. of the joints, all those things is a general health intervention for the joints.
0: Well, we also know that exercise is also anti-inflammatory. Oh, that makes sense too. Yeah, you're also, you know, st- you're stimulating the vagus nerve. It's also anti-inflammatory on top of everything else. And so um, I want to make another comment. So this is something I have learned the last year, which I don't know if you've had a chance to look at the stuff I've written recently, but um, I started working with Dr. Stephen Porges, who wrote this book about the polyvagal theory. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, we're learning to look at, I, you know, we both learned about the autonomic nervous system in medical school, but I sort of forget about it. And I sort of forgot about these things called cytokines, you know, these small communicating proteins. Yep. And they came up about a year ago and I'm going, what? I don't, I remember that word, but what I for, had forgotten that when you're under stress, you have increased adrenaline and cortisol, mm-hmm. but it also fires up your immune system. Mm-hmm. And so you have this ongoing inflammation. And so what happens if you're under ongoing stress and ongoing inflammation you mm-hmm. do get more tendonitis you do get more myofascial pain and yeah. so i did not realize that so what well, we also found out that when you breathe through your nose it directly stimulates the vagus nerve hmm. i did not know that slow breathing directly stimulates the vagus nerve humming hmm. you know causes vibration in the back of the throat which stimulates the seventh nerve which is which is in proximity to the vagus nucleus so certain pitches of music, like lullabies, again, anti-inflammatory, mm-hmm. so we've been fascinated. So instead of, well, like mindfulness meditation, again, you're, you're calming things down. You're actually, is an anti-inflammatory action. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a huge fan of psychology, but I'm also finding out when I can explain to patients that if you do this humming or deep breathing, it's not psychological, but you're affecting your body's inflammatory response. It's physiological. Really people connect with that pretty quickly. It's been pretty cool.
2: It makes a ton of sense. I mean, you know, and you know, of the factors, you know, factors that we can manage, you know, there's, there's those type of factors, there's nutrition, there's being active, there's social supports and networking, there's, um, uh, you know, having caring relationships uh, and all these things are part of, part of health. And then there's specific type of interventions. Making, keeping the body in a a calm state, even when you have a lot of stress going on in your life, uh, even when you have actual illness, too, because that's another thing, uh, you know, uh, is if you have an illness, and then you get a lot of stress response on top of it, and you can get worse inflammatory processes, it's going to have a bad outcome, it's going to worsen the outcome.
0: Right, we, we also just put on a big pain summit this last weekend, which um, next year you'll will be a part of this for sure. But we also found out what came out, one of the themes that came out of this was safety versus threat. And the essence right. of the problem with chronic pain is ongoing threat, which fires up your whole body. And then the solution is finding ways to create safety. And when you have the tools to remain calm, you are now safe because you have control. So, but we also found that fear of the fear Fear of the pain is actually a huge factor making the pain worse. So I think you just alluded to that a little bit. That yeah. even in the face of something that causes fear, working out the response to it is a big deal.
2: Absolutely, there's no question. I mean, uh, the for, so this first back uh, event I had, which was the acute herniation and the spasm, the spasm and me trying to fight through it was secondarily I think causing pain because I'm trying to fight on spasm spasm muscles trying to push through, and I became worried about having that again, you know. Right. I didn't I didn't want to have that again. So right. if you get into that, then you're gonna secondarily cause everything to clamp up more. So this is the thing that I had to partly deal with and to, and that's with sort of edging my way into it and also just seeing my MRI. Of course, I'm a physician, so I saw the MRI. Okay, and you see this herniated disc and stuff. Right. So it's almost the worst thing that could happen, is seeing it. Because, you know, if you don't know what it means, because, you know, you and I both know that at my age, like 80 percent of people have abnormal abnormalities on an MRI.
0: Right. Right. At least. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's just so ironic right now. And I don't want to rant too much. But, you know, we do know clearly that disc degeneration should not be called degenerative disc disease. It should be called a normally aging disc. Right. Hmm. And so it's just it's sort of an MRI scan it's sort of an epidemic created by the advent of MRI scans is that MRI scans show water content, the water content gets lower as you age, the scans become darker, and all of a sudden in medicine, that became a source of pain. Hmm. And then our most common reason we do back surgery is because of degenerative disease, which has been proven to not be a cause of pain, and Hmm. the success rate for a spine fusion for back pain is about 25%. Hmm. It's horrible. Hmm. And plus when you have a failed fusion, you know, I have scar tissue, you know, I've stress. you now have stress above and below the fusion spines break down. And probably 60% of my practice last five years was trying to bail out people who had prior failed spine surgeries and people I had my record patient had 29 surgeries in 20 years. Wow. Another guy, I think he had 18 operations in 48 months. Another guy, 10 operations in eight years. I mean, it just goes, another nurse, seven operations in 10 years. So what happens, once you start that cascade of failed spine surgery, it's just a nightmare. But it Mm -hmm. is ironic that we're up to $20 billion a year in in the United States on back surgery. Most of those should not be done. The success rate is 25%. But if you operate on something that's been proven to not be a source of pain, what would you expect to be different? Yeah, that's... that's, uh...
2: It's a it's amazing the uh, it's amazing uh, resource ma- misallocation versus right. allocating resources to to p- ways for people to bolster themselves and to override various various of these ailments, including pain or immobility and other things that, that go along with it and other somatic symptoms that are really worsened by emotional processes and stress factors. Right. So I just want twenty billion dollars. Think about that.
0: Oh, it's unbelievable. I mean, it, it, I just checked a couple of weeks ago, and we're now up to 1. 1. 1.2 million spine surgeries a year in the U.S. Wow. And this, the vast majority of those are just not necessary. Hmm. It's just incredible what we're doing to people right now. I think medicine right now, the business of medicine is really damaging our society. We're creating disability. We're not really solving it. It's just a nightmare right now. But yeah, I quit, you know, I quit my practice to do this. I mean, I saw mm-hmm. I was seeing so many people being damaged by spine surgery and so many people getting better with approaches like yours and what I'm doing. Um, I just couldn't do it anymore. So I mm-hmm. that's yeah, so that's why I quit was for that reason. So I just want to touch on two things really quickly before I get into your the main thing I want to talk to you about, which is the um, short-term dynamic psychotherapy. Um, is that you mentioned the so first of all, I just want to make make the point that you're six foot nine taller people have more problems with disc degeneration because you have a longer lever arm just just mm-hmm. wanted to mention that yeah <laughs> um so that's why back mechanics is so critical but you also mentioned you did did you say you work out in the gym also did you i do, do you...
2: i do i do weights i do a variety of physio things with bands around the knees uh, you know uh, lunges and a range of other things i have been advised to do for core stability uh, i do some yoga i do stuff every day
0: so i just would like to point out to the audience, please, please exercise. The data shows if you do not exercise, they did a major study probably 30 years ago now showing that every person loses 1% to 2% of their muscle mass every year after age about, after age about 60. Mm-hmm. So the weight training completely halts that and reverses it. The average increase in strength in the group who did resistance training was 40%. And I think you've probably seen the same thing that every patient I see that's active into their eighties and nineties, every one of them is doing weight training. It's Hmm. unbelievable. Hmm. So it's a huge factor. So that's your ticket to stay active and healthy, and we live a lot longer than we did fifty years ago. And I think the ticket to an active older life is just the weight room, and Hmm. you're playing basketball. Yeah, it's not bad.
2: (laughs) No, I'm I'm pretty. I'm really grateful to be able to. I mean, it's it's great.
0: (laughs) You, You you work out how many? You work out every day.
2: I do something at some things every day, and then I have a harder workouts twice a week. Like I'll play for an hour and a half, like hard okay. basketball, yeah,
0: you know, twice and a week. So um, I just wanted to summarize this segment, um, just briefly um, introduce this to the short term dynamic psychotherapy. And then in the next segment, we will talk about this in detail what it actually is, how you approach patients, what some of your successes are. So could you briefly um, just define short-term dynamic psychotherapy for us? So
2: there's, uh, as a collection, there's short-term dynamic psychotherapies are a group of relatively short talking therapies that are delivered one-to-one generally. Uh, and they deal with, uh, with unconscious or automatic responses related to past adversity and childhood that get reactivated in current relationship situations and manifest as... A range of anxiety phenomenon, and also patterns of defense or avoidant habits that people have learned in order to avoid feelings about childhood adversity that are triggered in current relationships. So that's the collection of the models. Uh, the specific one that, that I've been working with the last uh, 30 years is uh, called intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy. And the emphasis of that model is, and there are some related models to that, is on Recognizing, identifying, and experiencing, actually feeling emotions in the present relationship with the therapist that then activates memory and emotions related to childhood adversity and brings those feelings and memories forward. So the person in the middle of the meeting will have like um, memories and images and feelings come up from the childhood event because of the attachment with the therapist. So the activation of an attachment with you brings these attachment feelings up to be seen and processed and felt. And it's a, the most fascinating piece of it is um, uh, there's different ways this adversity shows up physically, uh, but once the person can identify and feel some of those emotions go through the body, this, we call the somatic pathway of emotions, the ones that go, the emotions, for example, body anger coming up the body hitting each spinal level going north, removes somatic symptoms all the way up as it goes. So uh, for example, patient who's got spastic um, uh, vocal cord paralysis, okay, as soon as the emotion of the anger came upward, hits the neck and gets up. Finally, when it gets to the jaw, the voice pops on and all of a sudden the person can speak. So it's kind of dramatic, some of these ones that are quite locked. The person with locked chest pain, locked shoulders, Lock back, lock, you know, pain in the in the abdominal wall. Uh, the uh, as the emotions go up through, it just cuts and sometimes completely removes the symptom. It's the beauty of it is diagnostic; it helps you to know that that was an important factor. Right. Uh, it's also therapeutic in that it right. removes a symptom, and it also helps the person know what they need to do. You know, so it's it's an interesting process for sure.
0: Interesting. Wow. You.
2: Medicine. You left surgery. I left medicine. I left medicine, uh, you know, because this is just uh, such a privilege to get to help people sort of heal on a deeper level than I could ever have done as a family doc.
0: Right. No, I'm, I'm excited to hear about this a little bit more. So, um, Alan, thank you very much. We, um, we're we going to hear a lot more about the uh, this procedure and some of the tools you use to actually accomplish this goal. But because um, this is not the normal psychotherapy. And I'd like to discuss that in the next segment. So this is I'm excited to hear this, and we're just going to hear a little bit more about this soon. So, Alan, thank you very much. Appreciate you being on the show. Thanks Thanks for having me.
1: I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Alan Abbas, for being on the show today and for sharing his experience with chronic pain and also for giving us an overview of his approach to treating chronic pain based on short-term dynamic psychotherapy. I'm your host, Tom Masters, Reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com.
0: Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.